Strange Stories UK here again for Series 3, Episode 21. This is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We're looking at the Fairy Investigation Society from 1927 to the present day. Well, I have to give you fair warning that this podcast will be something of a ramble. The podcast will principally be about an organisation known as the Fairy Investigation Society, but will consider related matters. Before the society is examined, I think it's best to give a brief description on the concept of fairies and a very brief history to allow some focus on the subject matter of the podcast, which is the Fairy Investigation Society, also known as the FIS or the Fairy Law Society, or the Fairy Research Society, and the Society for the Investigation of Fairy Fact. I want to now attempt to give some explanations uh, which will no doubt be criticised by those that are expert on the subjects of folklore, which I'm clearly not. I will attempt to give a journalistic overview, so here goes. There is no single explanation that could be described of what a fairy is, as the idea of a fairy is a wide-ranging and derives from many folk belief sources. I read a paper by Gary Arvana, who argues that fairies, or at least little people, exist in every culture on every continent, and in some places they coexisted with humans as little as two to five hundred years ago. Varner continues that such little people developed rituals, traditions and other systems of living that were entirely alien to the local modern residents, the humans, which added to the stories of their strange and wonderful existence and made humans wary of them. So, what is a fairy? Well, in folklore it's described as one of a class of supernatural beings being generally conceived as having a diminutive human form and possessing magical powers with which they often intervene in human affairs. There are many names given to the idea of what could be considered a fairy. For example, Banshee, Brownie, Elf, Gnome, Goblin, Hobgoblin, Kelpie, Leprechaun, Pixie, Robin Goodfellow, Troll. These are some of the names given in the English-speaking world, but as already stated, the idea of fairies, or fairy-like human-like forms exist in most if not all societies in the world so there's a great deal of variation. The word fairy is of French derivative and has started to replace the old English elf during the 14th century so that the word fairy and elf are interchangeable. Fairies were said to live in hollow hills or barrows of the dead which were thought to be entrances to the other world. The other world is a place of magical power which can reveal itself to certain people. Descriptions of fairies show they range in height from minute size to human size and their appearance can range from extreme beauty to grotesque ugliness. For those that believed in fairies in the past, they were considered mysterious and could pose a threat. An unexplained sudden death often being blamed on fairy kidnapping. The common wasting disease, tuberculosis, or TB, or consumption, was blamed on fairies who forced people to dance all night, which exhausted them and made them waste away, being, of course, symptoms of TB. Many people that went missing were said to have been taken by the fairies. There are cases in Ireland where people have been killed, 
and the body hidden, and the disappearance of the victim being blamed by the murderers on the fairies. Care was taken not to provoke or offend any fairies. Charms and amulets, such as St John's Wort, four-leaf clovers, clothes worn inside out, in any cold iron objects, were used as protection against their influence. And areas known to be fairy areas were avoided. Food would be left out to appease the fairies. The idea of a changeling whereby fairies steal a baby and leave a substitute was a common fear in medieval times. In medieval Europe, children had to work in the family unit from an early age, and any child with an unexplained illness or developmental disabilities would be a drain on family resources. So it was best not to take a chance and upset the fairies, as they were often blamed for children born with abnormalities. Folklorists, if that is a word, have described fairies as dispossessed spirits that once inhabited human bodies. This could be seen as a coping mechanism for those in the past that lost a younger family member. It could be said that the untimely dead, who left unfinished lives, had been taken by the fairies, with the implication that they may return at some time in the future. Others have thought of fairies as some kind of demon, as a special independent species separate from humans. They've been described as coming from earlier pagan belief systems. During the formation of Christianity, nature was initially seen as to seen to exist for the pleasure and consumption of man, man being regarded as supreme over nature. That nature should exist as an entity in itself, or herself, where with powers beyond those of man, was a frightening thought for Christians. Later, Christianity viewed nature as evil, and anything associated with nature was all seen in a similar way. The colour green became to represent the power and fertile life of nature, and green slowly became to be associated with evil and pagan ideas. To the Christian church, the colour green became thought of as an unlucky colour and associated with the dead, witches and sexual proscumity. Thus fairies, who were mischievous entities of the underworld, part of the old pagan world prior to Christianity, became if not outrightly evil, close relatives of evil. The concept of fairies was associated with witchcraft in the medieval period and later. Others associated them with the natural world as natural spirits. Fairies had also been depicted as being dangerous demons, especially during the period of the Reformation. Extreme Protestant groups thought spirits existed, the hobgoblin was described as mischievous and belligerent, and any contact with fairies was classed as witchcraft. In much of England, the idea of little folk was considered blasphemous during the Reformation. During the 19th century, British theosophy believed that hidden knowledge and wisdom from the ancient past explained many unexplained events, and some thought that alternative life forms and processes existed. Fairies being associated with nature were said to inhabit wildernesses, heaths and forests. They were seen as essential to nature. For example, the green man is essential to rebirth, representing the cycle of new growth that occurs each spring. Different spirits became associated with different plants, this idea resulting in the modern idea of flowery fairies books for young children. The Folklore Society has recorded a declining interest in the fairy figure 
and a more critical attitude towards them since the society recorded fairy stories since their foundation back in uh, the UK in 1878. Fairy believers, and most had sympathies with the theosophy, were seeing fairies as elementals, which are best described as being uh, between creatures and spirits, invisible to mankind but having physical and commonly humanoid bodies, as well as eating, sleeping and wearing clothes like humans. Those that believed in the reality of fairies thought them as nature spirits, which links them to the popular idea of that time of spiritualism. By the late 19th century and early 20th century, spiritualism had recast fairies as elementals, giving them a new respectability among Britain's middle classes. A pioneer in celebrating the elemental credentials of fairies had been Emma Hardinge Britton in the 1870s. She was a famous medium and spiritualist. Madame Blavatsky, who was an, who was, deserves a podcast in herself really, included fairies in her theosophical system in the late 19th century. The Cottingley Affair, of which more later, and World War I were turning points between the Victorian interest in the subject and the post-war idea as fairy as being a, a children's storybook figure. Well, that's a brief consideration of the concept of the fairy through history. Difficult to gauge how long to stay on the uh, subject, on the general history of the fairy, but I, I want to get into the main topic of the podcast, which of course is the Fairy Investigation Society, or FIS. Well, the Fairy Investigation Society was a semi-secret occult group that was set up in London in 1927, and it existed to collect evidence and information about the existence of fairies. The society was formed when Edward Sly met Quinton Crawford and they decided to create the Fizz. There seemed to be four stages in the history of Fizz. The first being in 1927, the foundation of um, Fizz, when Quentin Crawford started it with Bernard Sly, seemingly in a loose alliance with the Theosophies movement. The second the celebrity phase after World War II when it attracted a number of very well-known members, the third period or the shadow period when they may or may not have existed in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, and the fourth stage would be the modern day when the Ferry Investigation Society is contacted through the internet, the ferriest.com. The ferriest in 1926, Bernard Slay, or Slay, Slee, I think I'm going to go for, Bernard Slee, that's S-L-E-I-G-H, was an artisan woodcutter, woodcarver, who was interested in folklore. That year, he wrote a book called The Gates of Horn, being sundry records from the proceedings of the Society for the Investigation of Fairy Fact and Fallacy. It's a clever book pretending to be a non-fiction account of a collection of ten stories or incidents of human encounters with fairies. These were being set uh, in the 19th and 20th century. There's a story of a changeling in an industrial black country town. Another story tells of a fairy vengeance on the owners of jerry-built Welsh houses. And there's a tale of fairy human love which horrified a Methodist mother. 
Slee then linked all the stories through an organisation called the Society for the Investigation of Fairy Fact, thus anticipating the Fairy Investigation Society. Those within the organisation experimented with the ingestion of mescal buttons, a plant used as a hallucinogen, to allow them to see the fairy world. In Slee's novel... The eligibility for membership was restricted to those that believed in fairy folk. Another book published in 1913 was The Law of Prosophine by Morris Hewlett, who also introduced fairies into the modern adult settings that may have been something of an inspiration for the Slee book. The fairies become guardians of an ecologically damaged world. Bernard Slee's book was popular in certain circles, the individual stories being engaging and well told. Although Slee's book was not a great commercial success, it was said to be partly inspired influenced by a theatre showing of Peter Pan. As was followed Brummy, or did I mention that Slee was from Birmingham, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was also said to be inspired by Peter Pan. He had more success with his Lord of the Rings trilogy, the elves in the Tolkien stories are fairies. Tolkien was to publish his book The Hobbit in 1937 and must have taken in influences at this time that inspired those of the Fairy Investigation Society, Fizz. The Hobbit was set in ancient times between the age of fairy and the domination of man. Quentin Crawford read The Gates of Horn when it was given to him by a clairvoyant friend and was so impressed that he got in touch with Slee, and the two agreed to start a similar society as mentioned by Slee in his book. Crawford wanted to bring the book to life and create a society for fairy research. When Slee and Crawford met for the first time, it was said to be a meeting of two eccentrics with a common interest to start up the Fairy Investigation Society. Crawford later told how it was decided that he would provide the science behind the organisation, and that Slee, who was, as Crawford claimed, a clairvoyant, could provide the necessary psychic tools to contact fairies. At that time there was a lot of interest in fairies. The misery of World War I had caused a tremendous upsurge in spiritualism and allied beliefs such as folklore. There was also the double-edged sword of Cottingley Affair. I'll say more of that later. Quentin Crawford was a retired British naval officer and an early expert in the recent invention of radio. He had been experimenting with radio, or wireless telegraphy as it had been known, since the late 1890s. Captain Crawford was said to be the original inventor of the wireless telephone. He was said to have carried out the first wireless broadcast from, in Britain from uh, Her Majesty's ship Andromeda in 1907. He said that the idea came to him in a dream, and it was this factor which brought him into the orbit of psychical research. Crawford, in his research with wireless waves and their application to various forms of communication, even experimented with, with devices to get in touch with the unseen world. He began to experiment in spiritualism and wanted to use radio as a medium to contact the dead. At this time, the discovery of speech radio was considered proof that it was quite plausible that you could hear voices of the dead. Crawford had tried to record fairy music that he thought he'd heard. He thought he heard the sound of harp and bells. Crawford attempted his experiments in an unknown location near London, 
where he attempted to tune in to some marsh fairies, or marshes as he called them. It seemed that another method used by Crawford was automatic writing, either by using a planchette or just holding a pencil over a paper. Crawford claimed that fairies used ancient Saxon words. Some were difficult to ascertain their meaning. He said he was trying to locate treasure or archaeological finds from the information he was picking up from his fairy communication. It's time now to make a reference to the Cottingley Affair. 1917 was a strange time in Europe after three years of total war. 16-year-old Frances Griffith and her 10-year-old Elsie Wright were cousins living in the same house in a small village called Cottingley in Yorkshire. The girls claimed that they were seeing fairies and gnomes in the wood, and when borrowing the camera they took photographs of fairies which appeared to be a compound of human and butterfly. The publication of these photographs were discovered after a theosophy meeting which caused a sensation, partly because it was a news story which had nothing to do with the war. Although the photographs of the fairies seem like a crude attempt at fakery today, at the time experts claimed that the photographs were genuine, or at least they could find no evidence of tampering with a negative. Photography is still a relatively new invention in 1917 when the photographs were taken. Edward L. Gardner, the Osophic Society of London, who first called Conan Doyle's attention to the story, presented the girls with a good camera. Some more pictures were obtained, one of which was declared to be beyond the possibility of faking but attempts to secure more photographs at a subsequent period resulted in failure. The very famous Arthur Conan Doyle seemed to be taken in and was convinced that the photographs were genuine, and he published a book called The Coming of the Fairies in 1921. The Cottingley Affair and Conan Doyle's book caused a lot of interest and speculation, although public opinion was split over the photographs, or what the photographs actually showed. Skeptics pointing out that the fairies looked like the fairies found in children's books and they had very fashionable hairstyles. Many years later, the two women that had taken the photographs of children admitted they'd faked the photographs, although both insisted they'd seen fairies in the area beyond their house. Going back to the Fairy Investigation Society, FIS, whose members must have been interested in the Cottingley affair, although there's no recorded response, Bernard Slee didn't have much to do with Fizz after he set it up with Crawford and seemed to have moved to Chipping Camden in Gloucestershire where there was a centre for arts and crafts movement at the time and he seems to slip out of view. Chipping Camden seemed, a very, uh, seemed to be a hot spot for fairy sightings at that time. But if nothing else, Slee would be remembered for producing the ancient map of fairyland, newly discovered and set forth. This was a map created by Slee in 1917 as a comprehensive mashup of a number of popular fairy tales. It was a popular poster in the late 1960s and 70s, partly as a result of the popularity of Lord of the Rings. There was little information available about the early meetings of Fizz, partly because it was a secretive group and there are no early records that have been preserved. Rumours circulated that Fizz would go to natural settings to try to make communication with the little folk. Crawford claimed that uh, learning about fairies was much like making friends with wild creatures in the wood. 
Crawford made experiments whereby he tried to develop telepathic uh, communication with animals. Crawford did mention experiments which he undertook with other members of Fizz when he tried to make contact with the marsh fairies. He tried various methods including a fairy seance with a radio set and automatic writing. These were experiments that he had been working with since before the, be uh, the beginning of Fizz. There are a couple of magazine articles written by Quentin Crawford that give an insight in his philosophy. The New Frontiers magazine from November 1947 had an article called Experiences of Thought Communication with Animals and another magazine called Prediction from November 1948 had an article called Animal Radar. I'm going to give a joint summary of the articles here. The point that Quentin Crawford was trying to make that is if, if you want to see fairies, you have to tune into them. You have to anticipate them through more than just visual stimulation. His arguments have something about them which make me think of the Plato-Socrates theory of forms arguments in ancient philosophy. I find it quite persuasive. I've reduced the arguments here made by Crawford, so I hope it makes sense. The article argued that we're beginning to understand a little more about clairvoyancy and other strange senses which seemed so ridiculous to the ordinary man or woman that the very idea of them is just brushed aside as silly. Some people see auras, some see the spirits of the departed, others see fairies and others see ghosts. For the rest of the ideas put forward by Crawford, I want you to try to imagine here that he's talking to you. So here goes. It used to be the fashion to put things down to the imagination and on that account ridicule them as having no existence. But imagination is a very useful quality when we come to examine it because it's a scaffolding on which all our sensations are to be built. For the essential meaning of imagination is the power of forming images that can appeal to the mind where before there was just chaos or just blankness. The advent of radar has made this clear. Radar is not new to the world of ant nature. It's been used for countless ages as a matter of course by creatures of instinct, for example the bat and certain insects such as well as fish. Humans have for their most part relied on reason to help us out of our difficulties, while the animal world takes a more passive way of doing it. They don't feel inclined to seek a reason or a cause Bats have perfected their own use of two systems of sensing rather than just seeing in the dark. Both these systems are ecosystems. The one makes use of supersonic airwaves, while the other, like our eyes, makes use of electromagnetic waves or radiation. So the bat uses both radar and vision. Humans only use vision. The advantage of this method of building up images within the mind is that they are entirely related to one's particular interest in the world about it. The bat need not trouble about the general scenery or th things that do not concern him. He is only interested in night-flying insects and the, ob and the objects in his immediate vicinity which have to be avoided. He turns his two searching sensations into the direction. While therefore one sense is telling him that is what his food is doing, the other is telling him, warning him of obstacles in his path. 
What sort of image does the bat build up? Probably it's a very simple one. He's not concerned with colours, but rather light and shade and open spaces. And it's in these open spaces where he can sense his prey. He probably sees as we see in dreams. He does not lead the light of reason. In order to produce this kind of second sight, he uses special organs. Our images are so complicated in design that we actually register and observe far more than we are capable of taking in at that moment. If the image is a visual one, it's electromagnetic symphony played upon the nerve endings of our optic nerves. The actual interpretation takes the form of coloured picture image of the surrounding world. This electromagnetic symphony of sight is not in itself a picture at all. It's a mere echo of, uh, echo of radiation from near and distant objects. The mind arranges them into a picture, and so it does in the mind of an animal. So far this is the case, we are accustomed to assume that our horse and dog sees in much the way we do. But closer observation reveals that these creatures see far more than we do. And why is this? The reason seems to be that the picture need not purely be a visual one. Dogs and horses point their ears to make their picture reasonable, and often the final touch is put by smell. So <clears throat> hearing and smell are used much more by animals. The image that the animal builds up is a collection of different stimuli that build up an image in their conception. There are many things outside the limits of visual spectrum, but within the power of their mind to create an image, if they could be revealed by a suitable form of stimuli. If on occasion some of us could bat-like construct an image based on non-visual stimuli, it may be possible to receive and translate information and form impression of unseen images. Well, that's the end of my Crawford speech, but I will still address, as he would uh, say, for the rest of this information from the articles. So I am continuing to speak as Crawford. When this article was published, there was a lot of excitement over the concept of psychic photography. Regarding seeing fairies, the Fairy Investigation Society thought that some people were able to tune in and sometimes see fairies by some kind of radar projection. The argument being that someone quite unsophisticated, like a child, sends out the right kind of projection to attract those receptive to the projections, or rays or beams or whatever you like to call them, and there is sometimes a response. An example is given that one may, may look through a glass window and simply not notice that the dim reflection that's always thrown back by a window. It's only obvious when the light within is stronger than the light without and it gives a reflection. So imagine trying to look into the night from an ordinary railway carriage. One's overwhelmed by the echoes from the interior. What we see is what uh, is all around us. It's like looking into a looking glass, the old-fashioned word for mirror. Reflection is a light echo. As the interior light is dimmed, the reflecting surface becomes more transparent, until finally one may suppose that the glass window has no real existence. Crawford would argue that our interior light has been dimmed till we have no clairvoyant. 
We've been schooled only to trust the light of reason, what we can see. We have to account the fact that a dog will recognise his master or mistress in any dress or cloak because he uses other stimuli. And I think a kind of image that an animal sees must be vastly different from our own. For example, there's no picture that's capable of attracting an animal by its likeness, or nor would any animal be attracted by my image in a looking glass. His reflected image seems to have lost something, something of reality that the glass does not reproduce in the personality. It is then that we, in common with animal, animals, give out a radiating aura. Captain Crawford and those in Fizz believe many forms of instinct are produced by the impact of the sensitive brain of waves. If they can form a pattern, they come a communicated idea. There was another condensed version of the... So this was a condensed uh, version of the experience of thought, communication with animals, which appeared in New Frontier in 1917. In 1947, a magazine that folded after only two issues, apparently. There was another interesting publication by Crawford that's self-explanatory. That would be The Consciousness of Flowers, by the Anti-Vivisection and Humanitarian Review, written by Crawford in 1932. Well, that's the end of the thoughts of Captain Crawford. I want to get back on now to FIS, the Ferry Investigation Society. There's no record of who the early members of Fizz were. We know Quentin Crawford, Bernard Slee, Lady Molesworth and Claire Cantlin were all active members. The publisher and occultist Jean Michaud was a member. We know this as his daughter found his membership card after his death. Possibly Marjorie Johnson, was, who had become important to the society in the 1950s, may have been a member. Another possible member was um, Tom Charman from Fordingbridge in the New Forest. Charman was described by Conan Doyle in his book, The Coming of the Fairies, as someone who builds himself a shelter in the forest and hunts for fairies, as would an entomologist hunting for butterflies. Conan Doyle was also probably a member, along with Havelock Ellis, Alastair McGregor and Edward Gardner. We could be fairly sure there were about 50 members of the society by 1930, when the society organised meetings, lectures and discussions uh, for the collection, collecting evidence of fairy life. There's very little press coverage of Fizz at this time, or, or any time for that matter. There was a Daily Express report from the 4th of November 1927 about a fairy research society making gentle fun of it, but uh, neither Crawford or Slee were mentioned. It was in 1929 when Claire Cantlin took over as secretary of Fizz. Crawford was later described this time as the halcyon, the halcyon days of the society for him. The key members of the group would meet at a private house in London, and it was the policy of the society to remain as secret as possible especially as some of the members of the society wished to hide their identity as a result of their other work, as there was some ridiculing of the belief of uh, fairies. When Clare became secretary, the London Lodge printed its first newsletter, and Clare seemed to get the movement going. 
Fizz used to meet at squares, uh, Smith Square at Westminster, central London. The newsletters were printed and distributed, and there were lectures. E.L. Gardner gave a couple of talks on the Cottingley Fairies. John Charman, a mystic of sorts, would talk on automatic fairy photographs. And there were other speakers, but the only other reference I could find is to a, a Madame Zazoni. The main objective of the society was to compile evidence in the form of anecdotes, letters and a popular account of fairy sightings. A typical meeting of the Fairy Investigation Society began with a speech by the chairman. He would offer cases of fairy evidence under close observation. A toast would be offered to the fairies, followed by a discussion of financial reports, forthcoming cases and reports, all to be signed by the members. Crawford wrote the early editorials to the newsletter and corresponded with people to try to get them to join the IFIS. There were said to be some interesting members, although many wanted to remain anonymous. Crawford said that certain religious groups were against the activities of FIS, which gave added importance to some society members remaining anonymous. However, other members of the group, without reputations to protect, wanted more publicity. There was a pre-war FIS witness um, who was the famous Hungarian parapsychologist and sceptic, Nandor Foda. He was friendly with the members of FIS and he interviewed Claire Cantlin, the secretary of FIS, and he wrote about it in, in uh, well, Foda wrote about it in his book, Between Two Worlds. Nandor Foda's name appears in regularity in the journals of the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. During the course of the interview, Claire Cantlin, who was um, a medium herself, selected a number of letters about fairy sightings for him to read. Fodor said that he interviewed Claire in his journalistic days for the Sunday pictorial, uh, I beg your pardon, the Sunday dispatch, and she picked amazing letters that society had received. One of the letters was a sighting in the Cotswolds at a house that backs on to the forest of Birdlip Beaches. I took this to mean Birdlip Hill near Gloucester, as I could find no mention of Birdlip Beaches on the map. The letter says, the woman says, I washed my hair and was drying it in the sunshine of the forest, out of sight of the house. Suddenly I felt something tugging at my hair. I turned to look. A most extraordinary sight met my eyes. He was about nine inches high and most dreadfully ugly, dreadfully misshapen, most wrinkled, the tiniest mannequin I've ever seen. He was the colour of dead aspen leaves, sort of yellowy-brown, with a high squeaky voice. He was caught in the strands of my hair. He was struggling to escape, and he grumbled and complained all the time, telling me I had no right to be there, troubling honest folk, that I might have strangled him with his my hair. Finally, he freed himself and disappeared. I mentioned my experiences afterwards to a professor at Bristol University. He was not surprised. He told me that Birdlip Beaches were one of the few places left where there were fairies, and one couldn't go there because of it. Fodar said that he enjoyed the story and was delighted when Mrs. Uh, Claire Cantlin added, I've got no need to go to strangers for testimony. My house and garden at Putney, in London, are overrun by fairies and gnomes. The other day, my boy Robin, who's ten years old, ran to me in great fright. He thought there was a pig in the room. 
it was a fat gnome sitting on the chair, looking very cross and grunting. A few days later I heard the noise myself. It was a blend between the growling of a dog and the grunting of a pig. Nandor Foda was very much a sceptic, but he was interested in the symbolism of the fairy and would always keep an open mind. He was especially interested in the idea of supernatural time-lapses in fairyland. The differing objectives and the strong personalities of the members of Fizz would eventually cause the group to fade away and then collapse by the time of World War II. Then, according to Crawford, the records of the society were lost, supposedly during the Blitz. They were probably being kept at Crawford's house in London. Fizz was probably an inactive until about 1947 when an elderly Quentin Crawford revived it. But it didn't really get going again until 1949 when Crawford asked Marjorie Johnson to become Secretary of Fizz. He was impressed with her energy and passion and knew that she would drive Fizz forward. Nottingham-based Marjorie Thelma Johnson, whose day job was um, a secretary to a lawyer, became the beating heart of Fizz during the 1950s and Fizz came back to life stronger than ever. Johnson wrote the newsletters and did most of the administration and compiled all the reports of the society. Marjorie Johnson was a believer, having seen her first fairies as a child. In 1936 she wrote about an experience she had of fairies in the letters page of the popular literary magazine at the time, John of London's Weekly. It was at this time she started collecting fairy sighting accounts. And Claire Cantman had also been collecting fairy sighting reports. There are a few fizz letters that still exist, and there are said to be some in the archives at Tate Muir Britain Museum in London, which I suppose could be viewed by appointment. The topics from June 1956 include Midsummer's Eve, Cat-like Elementals in the New Forest, The Fairies Tree, this is Ola Kahn's Fairy Art Tree at Melbourne, Australia. Also there's a list of the members of the group. The summer 1957 newsletters includes a tribute to Quentin Crawford who had just died in May of that year. There's also an article on Bracken Gnomes, The Dancing Fairies and um, True Fairy Tales. The summer 1959 newsletters includes articles on Belief in Fairies, The Kingdom of Pan and Midsummer's Eve. The newsletter from Michaelmas 1961 includes the pictorial article of the 23rd of October 1961, more of which shortly. Also, there is extracts from the Kingdom of Gods book by a Fizz member, Geoffrey Hodson, and there's some obituaries of members of the Society. Later newsletters included mainly topics on Fizz members' case studies of fairies. The last newsletter from autumn 1963 includes topics on flower healing and beauty without cruelty. In the 1950s, when Fizz was receiving information of a sighting, it seems that a field trip was sometimes arranged. Fizz members regularly met up to visit locations, one example being a trip to Iona, an island in Scotland in 1957. Another field trip being to Lincolnshire, when a Mr Verdoy reported semi-vegetable forms assuming human shapes in a Lincolnshire wood in 1956. Mr Verdoy, a teacher, found several other fairy accounts relating to these woods and even spent two, two nights there hoping to see fairies for himself. 
there was an exchange of letters and Marjorie Johnson and her sister Dorothy travelled to observe the fairies using a sketch map sent by Verdoy. They accidentally went to the wrong part of the wood, but nevertheless found small paths and fairy mounds. The sisters took photographs to record their visit, but the pictures of the mound were later developed and came out blank. Marjorie and her sister claimed the presence of fairies in the trees because of violently shaking branches above their heads, which they thought was supernatural. During 1955, letters appeared in the publication Folklore and the Listener magazines, describing Fizz and a planned book on fairy sightings. It was an appeal for more reports from the public. The letter was written by Fizz member Alistair McGregor, who was working in conjunction with Marjorie in collecting fairy sightings from, uh, from people. The letter stated, Sir, I'm collaborating with Marjorie Thelma Johnson in a serious work dealing with contemporary accounts of fairy visions. A great mass of acceptable material is already in hand, but it would be a pity to go to press without seeking supplementary bona fide evidence known to exist. If any reader would care to submit an authentic report account of his or her having seen or being aware of the presence of fairy or fairies, we would certainly give it a sympathetic consideration. Alice McGregor was also writing to newspapers asking for fairy sightings, accounts and readers. And it was in 1955 when this push was on when Marjorie Johnson received most fairy reports. This was the celebrity phase of uh, Fizz after 1950, when it attracted a series of very well-known members. Simon Young, who was a leading British expert in folklore and accounts of the supernatural, and the present founder of the Fairy Investigation Society, said that the fairy uh, fizz was made up of a bunch of bohemian eccentrics based in London. The membership of the society crept up to about 100 members during the 1950s. A few post-war fizz documents survive to the present. There are membership lists, already mentioned, that appeared in the June 56 in a later newsletter of the Society. And this showed that the membership included, who we've already mentioned, Alistair Alpine MacGregor, who's a travel writer from Scotland, said to be a poet and an expert on Scottish folklore. He also wrote books on the paranormal and was an activist, or whatever the word would have been back then, a campaigner, against vivisection. Most of those involved with fizz would have been uh, against animal experimentation. Ithel Colquhoun, a serialist painter interested in the occult. In the occult. Ithel seems a particularly strong and interesting personality who stood up for her beliefs and would not be bullied. There's an interesting account of her in on, um, on Wikipedia. Hugh Dowding was the man who was head of the RAF Fighter Command that won the Battle of Britain in 1940, although it's claimed that it was Dowding's second wife Muriel who was the fairy believer. Victor Purcell, who was a huge character and an expert on Chinese affairs. Walter Starkey, an Irish expert on the uh, Romany people, gypsies. His aunt was married to Arthur Rackham, the, fellow, uh, the famous illustrator who um, specialised in fairy illustrations. Walter had all sorts of well-known contacts. The novelist Naomi Mitchelson, another strong woman who wrote 90-plus books, mainly historical novels, often with an occult theme. She was another very interesting personality and 
proofread Lord of the Rings for Tolkien, but was considered by those that knew her a force of nature and achieved so much in her life. Other members were Edward Gardner, the barrister and MP, Daphne Charters, an author, especially about fairies, Ola Cohn, the author and artist, often with fairies as a subject matter, S. Jackson Coleman, barrister and author, and connected with the London Folklore Club, Marianne Crow, the artist, Geoffrey Hodson, the occultist and philosopher and author, Douglas Hunt, a naval officer, George Farr, Legler, an artist, Nancy Price, the actress, and Wesley Tudor Paul, the spiritualist and author. Walt Disney was also a member of Fizz, although not very active. These people were members who were members were not strange introverted folklore conspirators, but they were leaders in their field. They were strong personalities that were capable of forming their own opinions. In 1956, a small article was published in the Psychic Observer magazine saying, A naval commander, two clergymen, two gypsies, doctors of music and philosophy, some artists and authors, wrote to Marjorie Johnson, Brooklyn's Road, Carlton, Nottingham, to tell her about fairies they've seen. Miss Johnson, 44, says she's seen fairies since she was six. Since she was 19, she's collected stories about them. She's become secretary of the Fairy Investigation Society. Reports of hundreds of different kinds of fairies have reached her. She says, They are really forces of nature. Without fairies, there would be no nature. They're like an atomic power. Anyhow, she's writing a book on the subject. And uh, this was uh, sent in by a naval commander in 1956. Well, the naval commander is clearly Quentin Crawford. Marjorie Johnson was said to have a very long-standing fascination with the gypsy culture and published a pamphlet on the Roma Gypsy and Fairy Law and Children's Verse. The authors and doctors would probably be members of Fizz. The artist may have been Bernard Slee, who died in 1954. And there was a working partnership between Alastair McGregor and Johnson, which continued until 1957 when the partnership was amicably terminated. Reason being that Miss Johnson wanted to finish the book quickly. She said, I didn't feel that I could stand any more delays, and McGregor wanted to go abroad. The book was to be called Fairy Vision, although ironically it would not be published until many years later as Seeing Fairies. In about 1957, Crawford wrote a preface for the Fairy Vision under the impression that it would be published in the near future, and he was to die in the May of that year. The book was still unfinished in 1960 when the Sunday Pictorial wrote a sensational story about Marjorie Johnson, who was Secretary of Fairy Law Society, as they called it at the time. It was claiming that she was writing a, a work about the sex life of sprites. In 1926, when Slee had published The Gates of Horn, he prophetically written that members of the Fairy Society would be open to ridicule and misunderstanding. The newspaper article quoted Marjorie talking about fairies. It's taken me years of study to win their friendship and discover the secrets of their sex life. But anyone who's admitted to the circle of fairy friendship is very fortunate. Through billions of years, fairies have learnt the secrets of universal love. The article implied that fairies were by nature bisexual. 
The, tablet news, the tabloid newspaper ran with a story which became an international news story, being printed all over the English-speaking world. Marjorie Johnson was deeply hurt and offended by the misrepresentation, as she was thought of as a prim and proper lady, and she began to withdraw from her role in the society. Fizz started to disappear from public view at this time, when they were being ridiculed. Marjorie Johnson died in October 2011, aged 101. She never saw the Fizz book published in English. Marjorie thought that she'd lost her English manuscript, but after her death her relatives found her lost copy in a box under her bed. It seemed that Marjorie had been something of a hoarder. As the house had to be cleared, it was thought that other Fizz documentation was unfortunately lost at this time, as Fizz was in hibernation at that time. A book published by Marjorie Johnson in Germany in 1996, when Marjorie was 89 years of age, Naturgister, Natural Spirits, is the German version of what would be seeing fairies, and it contains some records and biographical details of pre- and post-war fairy investigation society. The society's post-war newsletters and membership lists from 56 and 57 were included in the Appendix 1 and 2. The book's still available from the uh, Amazon German site, along with another book published under her name, both books selling for less than £2, but of course they will be in German. There was still the intention for Fizz to publish the fairy sightings into an English book called Fairy Vision. It was finally published in 2014 called Seeing Fairies, from the manuscript that was discovered under Marjorie's bed with the original introduction written by Quentin Crawford. The book had been delayed by illness and Marjorie Johnson's eye problems, the main difficulty being the, uh, finding a publishing house ready to print a book according to Fizz instructions. The book's available on Amazon and it uh, is described as follows. This is not a children's book. It accounts of fairy experiences mainly from the 20th century. They come from businessmen and women, housewives, journalists, clergymen, bus drivers, anglers, gypsies, school teachers, university professors, soldiers, artists, authors, poets, musicians, sculptors, actresses and many others who have seen fairies of various types in houses, churchyards and sheds, in gardens, fields, woods and country lanes and public parks, on moors, hills and mountains and even on sewing machines, typewriters and kitchen stoves. In 1950, Marjorie T. Johnson became Honorary Secretary of the Resurrected Fairy Investigation Society, which had been founded by Captain Quentin C.A. Crawford, and she collected accounts of fairies and also angelic beings from many of the members. In 1955, the Scottish author and folklorist Alistair Alpine MacGregor collaborated with her in sending letters to the national press asking for further true experiences, and many more were received. The results in this book, published here in English for the first time, Marjorie Johnson's only request was that readers peruse the book with an open mind. This book is special, so says an introduction by Simon Young, because it brings together an unprecedented number of fairy sightings. There are here about 400 sightings from around the world. In short, this is the biggest single collection of fairy experiences ever amassed. Whether fairies are out there, our author points to uh, Wood Hedgerow and Waterfall, or in there, author points to a balding head of a middle-aged witness, then they need to be explained. 
Marjorie gives us in these pages the tools to do just that. Most of the accounts in Seeing Fairies date to the 1950s and include memories from the previous six decades, with many of the years in and around Second World War. Many date to 1955 and apparently came out of the uh, McGregor Johnson drive. There are a handful of letters, however, that probably represent pre-war fizz records. There is, for example, an account of a personal experience of Claire Cantlin, dated by Miss Johnson in 1933. There had been other books published on fairy signings, but never on such a scale. Seeing fairies also gives us hints as to how fizz operated in the post-war period. The fairy signings in the book can be broken down into four categories. Firstly, a small number of the author's own fairy experiences. Secondly, anecdotes told to Marjorie Johnson. Three, letters received by Marjorie Johnson. And four, stray accounts that appeared in the media and on the radio that were copied by Marjorie Johnson. In these last cases, Marjorie Johnson often got in touch with those that had described their experiences to ask supplementary questions. Whether you live in the UK, you're sure to find a story or two in your local area. Sea fairies in Loo, fire fairies in London, cat-like fairies in the New Forest, banshees in Ireland. To green wood elves in Lincolnshire, and a rather surprising sighting of a leprechaun in Northumberland. I've included a few of the fairy sightings at the end of this podcast from a more recent survey of fairy sightings for Fizz by Dr Simon Young and uh, Dr Kerry Holbrook. Seeing fairies gives a relatively few records after mid-1950s and there is the impression that fizz fell into a gentle decline. Very little is known of the history of fizz from the mid-1960s. This seems to be the dark ages of the society. The Fairy Investigation Society appears in Lewis Spence's Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology, which seems to date to 1978. Lewis Spence argued that the reports of unidentified flying objects received tolerant public notice, whereas reports of fairy sightings encouraged press ridicule, such an attitude dissuading membership of the society. In the early 1980s, the Fizz headquarters were now thought to be at one Lakelands closed, Stillorgan, Blackrock and Dublin in Ireland. It was not really active under Marjorie Johnson's successor, Leslie Shepherd. A journalist tried to contact Fizz in 2008, but received a reply from someone claiming to know the secretary, but did not want to talk to anybody about anything. Although it was still thought to be operational as late as 1990s, Marjorie Johnson said that it was defunct by 1996. In 2013, Simon Young and others decided to relaunch Fizz on the internet. They searched unsuccessfully for any previous members of Fizz. The relaunch version described themselves as a secular version of Fizz. Anyone interested in fairy lore was welcome to join, be they believers or sceptics. Memberships free of charge and available online. The objectives of the society were to, one, create a website that will gather together sources, links, bibliography, references and discussions on fairies and related supernatural creatures and make them available online free of charge. Secondly, to establish a biannual Fizz newsletter with a collection of interesting fairy links from the web and references to any new publications on fairies and fairy lore. Thirdly, 
to run in 2015, 60 years after Marjorie Johnson did the same, a fairy census of all those that have had a fairy experience, a census which will subsequently be published online. The society was re-established online by Young in about 2014 and it's said to have an anonymous membership of about 500 members. There are modern uh, FIS equivalents in the UK, such as the Sussex Centre for Folklore, based in Chichester, and funded by the University of Portsmouth. There's a Fairyland Trust in Norfolk, amongst others, showing that there's a growing interest in the subject today. Well, I've got um, a few experiences of... Um, people that have seen fairies that were given to uh, Simon Young and uh, Kerry Holbrook for their census. I'll read a couple out. The first one is from Berkshire in England. It's from a male in the 1990s, no age given, and it happened in open land fields. The viewer said he was on his own. It was between 6am and 9am. It happened for less than a minute. It was a friendly, occasional supernatural experience. There was no special state reported. A sense that the experience was a display put on especially for him. Unusually vivid memories of the experience. A sense of the experience marked a turning point in his life. So here goes. In the summer of 1999, I was working on the enormous archaeological excavation at the future site of Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport just to the west of London. There was about 70 of us, and we had seven-day accommodation a few miles away at the magnificent, monstrous, gothic Victorian pile that is Royal Holloway College. It was wonderful there. It had its own wooded uh, parkland with all sorts of huge, gorgeous, mature trees, with tiers of ornamental ponds overhanging with giant plants inhabited by huge carp. And best of all, it had a bunny field on the far left of uh, the college. There was a field where we spent every waking hour we could when we weren't working. We called it the bunny field because the bunnies would all be over it, grazing, whenever we got there, and they would scarper. But if you sat quietly, they'd come out again, and you'd be surrounded by rabbits. It was lovely. My friend and I particularly liked to hang out there. We spent a lot of time there playing frisbee, for hours on end. It was an idyll. Most people went home at weekends, but I was living there seven days a week, and I recently, and I really got into the bunny field, so I decided that I would stay up all night uh, one Friday just to be there. So I did. It was amazing. Full moon, creaking trees, moonlit pools, strange atmospheres, tiny hues drumming past me in the darkness. Logic tells me it was only a muntjac deer, but of course it was a fawn to tell the poetic truth. More on the fawn later. Anyway, I had a brief nap in my room, about five minutes walk away, and about 3am woke up, truly energised, and at 4am went straight back out. So it's about 7am that morning, it's mid-July, the sun's up, and it's already hot. The sky is a cloudless blue, and I'm in a place of bliss. I'm sitting there in the middle of a slightly sloping field, peacefully watching a rabbit, a magpie and a green woodpecker, who are all feeding on the grass slightly down a gradual slope in front of me. I remember that 
just before I started watching the animals, I'd been looking at the areas around the trees across the field. I particularly remember a huge copper beech, watching a great stream of wispy chai tapering off from their crowns. I'd fairly recently learned how to see auras, auras around plants, and I guess I got myself into quite a clairvoyant and aware state. Anyway, I'm watching the birds and the bunny, not thinking of anything, when a big shadow coming from the right zooms over me very fast. I whipped out, looking for a source. There were no birds in the sky, no trees close enough to harbour any that, that might have been there. I turned back to settle down again, and looked to my right and saw about 50 yards away, zooming across the field, a grey shadow about six feet long, like a cloud flying loud over the field, really fast. As I turned my head to face front, another zipped past in front of me, about the same distance away. And that was my encounter. My first instinct wasn't to think of anything other as an explanation. I'd watched the birds fly over, looked at their shadows, and it struck me at that moment, as I watched the birds fly over the shadows, that what I saw that it was grey rather than black, mainly through pigeons and magpies, in redneck parakeets and jackdaw. They weren't fast enough or any big enough to explain them. In dealings with the unexpected, a stamp of authenticity I'd come to trust is a gradual realisation of the truth of the matter, after all rational avenues have been explored. So wow, I thought, I've just seen some sort of element, elemental, freaking amazing. I was elated because they were in the air and so very swift. I decided that they were sylphs. That moment changed my life. I got well into learning more about them. That experience affected me in several profound and wonderful ways. But there's more. About a year later, I was newly settled into the beautiful medieval city of Winchester, living with friends and fellow diggers. One friend was getting married and wondered about getting a pagan hand fasting. I said I'd look into it for him. So I phoned up the British Pagan Federation and arranged to meet with a priestess in my vicinity to discuss the matter further. I was invited to come along to one of their local pagan monthly meets, moots in a pub, not far from Winchester. I duly went along and had my chat with the priestess, which was all well and good, although nothing came of the hand-fasting in the end. And afterwards I got a pint and joined some other members at the table. One guy introduced himself as Fred, and one way or the other he asked me what I was in, why I was into the pagan thing, so I told him my story. Now I specifically remember not telling him where it had happened. I didn't want to get bogged down with unnecessary detail. All I began with was I was in a field. It could have been anywhere in the world. When I finished, he said, You weren't anywhere near Runnymede, where the Magna Carta was signed, were you? I've been about a mile as a crow flies from Runnymede. My mouth fell open. Were you at the Royal Holloway College? he asked. Then he pulled aside his jacket. He had a Royal Holloway polo shirt on. He told me that the, na the, the nature spirits experience were common in that area. He told me of a fawn that lived in the Arboretum. He told me of how the Silts got together around the Air Force Memorial at Runnymede. That was a memorable evening. But it's still not quite the end. A few months later, a wise friend of mine gave me Geoffrey Hodson's Fairies at Work and Play for my birthday. Hodson was a clairvoyant in the 1920s, and a Fizz member as well, if you remember, who spent the summer of 1922 riding around the Lake District with his wife and dog on their motorbike sidecar, visiting various places of natural beauty. 
he would then clairvoyantly observe the ethereal life around him and describe it. To his wife, he would write it down, and the book was the result. I remember straight away flipping through to the Sylph chapter, but his description did not really tally what I saw. He describes them as thus. At first sight, they appear to be winged, a pair of magnificent white pinions attached to their body from the top of their shoulders, reaching down to their feet. The faces of these creatures of the air are like strangely beautiful but fierce human females, strong, vital and controlled in spite of their apparent reckless abandon. I was rather crestfallen, but I carried on reading until I came to another chapter written at Lake Thirlmore. This time they describe lake spirits. I cannot make out any distinct shape. They may take and lose different forms with great rapidity. There is a general suggestion of a wing-like formation, and occasionally the likeness of a human face or head. Again this appearance is lost, and they appear like wisps of white cloud. The swiftness of movement, and the rapidity in which they change their appearance make it difficult to study them with any degree of accuracy. Their movement is not unlike that of swallows flying over the surface of the river. Their colouring is chiefly white, deepening to a dove grey. As I read this, I immediately recalled the conversations we'd had sitting in the bunny field, wondering whether it might have been a small ornamental boating lake. Our musings fueled by the presence on one side of the field of a flight of a shallow, wide, grand, balustraded stone marble steps, such as one may launch some small boat or canoe from, that descended and disappeared into the turf. To sum it up, I think I saw the lake spirits that day, still perhaps tied to their element of a lake which had physically gone. But ethereally they remained dove grey. That was the exact colour. Dove grey spirits. Or the shadows of spirits or something. I don't quite know what. I didn't see faces. Only amorphous cloud-like wisps. But I saw them on that day. And lastly, and most significantly for me, they saw me first. And flew over me. They drew my attention to them. They wanted me to see them. So, that was the first one got another one here from Cornwall. This was from a female in the 1970s. She was aged between 11 and 20 um, and it happened in the early afternoon. She was happy and excited. So they were on a family holiday in Cornwall and they'd been joking about little people who lived in the mines. I think we'd also bought some souvenir Scottish piskies in the past. Cornish Pixies. The first proper day of our holiday, we went for a walk on a clear sunny day. It was very rural. I remember we were walking down a grassy track with large banks of wild hedges running alongside. It could have been somewhere near Polpero. I'm not sure. I was walking a few steps with my mum and my sisters, excited about having a whole week off, when I saw a gnome sitting by the side of the path. It was so unexpected. I think I remember feeling scared or wondering if I was seeing things or going mad. I took another couple of steps and I saw his nut-brown wizened face in detail. He was cheekily grinning at me. He had a mossy brown beard and dark brown shining eyes. He was wearing a peaked hat, brown, and a shiny jacket and trousers in shades of brown and okra. I'd say he was about 12 to 14 inches tall. I literally could not believe my eyes. I was even too amazed, dumbstruck, to turn around to tell my family to look at the gnome by the path. The gnome cocked his head again, cheekily, turned his back on me, and then kind of changed or melted, 
transmugnified into an old tree stump. This all must have happened in a second, just as I found the breath to say, Mum, look! But of course there was nothing to see but a tree stump. I felt really stupid then, so I muttered something about non-consequential as we walked past. I was almost panicking, trying to make sense of what I'd just witnessed. I was quite shaken. It was a breathtaking experience. It seemed so silly, and I felt silly, and I didn't tell anybody what I'd just seen. Yet I really believed I witnessed a spirit of nature or a gnome or something. But I also felt stupid, like a trick had been played on me and I'd fallen for it. I felt like the joke was on me and the gnome was having a laugh about it. About 12 to 14 inches high, he looked like a gnome I suppose, um, all natural wooden leaf colours, wearing a soft pointed hat that wasn't sticking up. The material looked shiny, not wet. Just shiny old leather, I think. I can't remember the shoes. Because it all happened in a natural environment. The being looked real, as of this earth, but out of place in my reality. I didn't feel holy or in awe. I just felt confused at what I was seeing and disbelief. Could it have really been there? A nature spirit? A connection to beings on another sphere of existence? Anyway, the next one here is in Hampshire, in England, a female, um, within the last 20 years, aged between 40 and 50, in uh, open woodland. Happened in less than a minute. The incident happened when I was sitting in the open back of a flatbed trailer in a field. There were a number of other people in the field, but they were busy elsewhere. I was relaxing, just gazing across the fence in a wood. A very large, large, twice-human height, humanoid creature, which appeared to be made out of sticks, jumped out of a tree about 30 metres from me. He landed in a crouched position with one hand on the ground in front of him. He seemed to look at me for five seconds and then jumped straight back into the tree and sort of strode away in the branches along the line of the fence in the corner of the field where he turned away from me and went out of sight. I and a friend who I called over went and examined the place where he jumped down, where he turned and went away. We found nothing but a strong smell of decay, like a skeleton made out of sticks. Didn't look like a ghost or an alien, didn't have wings. It might easily have been some other type of anomalous experience, but not having any other way of categorising it, I chose to ascribe it to the fairies. This next one is from the northeast, England, a male, in the last 20 years, between in his 30s, happened in an open field on a country road, and one other person ex shared his experience. Happened in the early hours of the morning, and uh, he had taken alcohol, and he lost the sense of time. There was a profound silence before the experience, hair prickling or tingling before or during the experience. The experience was a sense of the experience was a display put on especially for you. Unusual vivid experience. So it's like a ghost story, but there's a fairy element to it. It was at some point between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, and a friend and I had been out for a drink and decided to go for a ghost walk. Named as such as we were going to a place called Gibbet's Hill, which in centuries past held the gallows in which sheep rustlers and others were executed criminals were locally hung. It's a place 
that since childhood have felt excludes a strange atmosphere. Gibbets Hill lays between two crossroads, along a path called Douglas Lane. Douglas Lane itself is reputed to be haunted by a grey lady. She said she, she's said to be a spectre of Lady Douglas, a past resident of Whitton Towers in the nearby village of Whitton Le Weir. It's said that she was murdered, possibly by her husband, and that her spirit wanders on New Year's Eve between the villages of Whitton Le, Le, Le Weir and Howden Le Weir. That night there was a crisp covering of snow a few inches deep, and there was a bright moon, perhaps a full moon. It cast a purplish-blue light upon the snow. Upon turning into Douglas Lane, a fox crossed our path. We proceeded along the lane to a ramshackle empty old house, since bought, up, uh, bought and renovated, which as children we used to run past, as it was Mad Mary's house. Mad Mary probably wasn't mad, but she was a, a reclusive old lady who sometimes twitched curtains as we looked out. As children, we thought she was a witch. Mary, which I seem to recall might have been her real name, not positively sure, had at that time been dead for a number of years and her house had fallen into a state of disrepair. It was to our surprise, as we cut behind it onto the fields, where there's a public right-of-way to see lights on in the house, except there weren't lights but a trick played by this strange moonlight. It was quiet and still, save for the oddly nocturnal crowing of a solitary crow roosting in a tree on the crossroads. We mildly jumped when we approached the curious horse that we hadn't noticed. We'd spooked ourselves up for the walk, and he had a few beers, but the offence that followed happened as described. We crossed the field to the corner where the stile at the end of the thorn or holly hedge ran except the stile wasn't there. That seemed odd. It had been there for a few years, so we looked along the hedge to see where it had moved to. There was no sign, so we retraced our steps to see if we'd made an error. Knowing something of folklore, I talked about the play of being pixie-led and joked that we should turn our coats inside out to break the spell. But we both decided it was too cold to even take our coats off, so I said I'd heard that whistling was another method to reputably break the spell. But both of us, being fans of M.R. James, also ventured that whistles can sometimes also attract the wrong attention from the other side. That did not stop me whistling, however. Strangely, especially as this area is an open area at the top of a hill and not really an echoey place. But there was an echo of the whistling, instantly. There was a short delay of only a second or two, but still noticeable when the whistle hung in the air and then returned to us, if in mimicry rather than bounce, so there was an odd climate effective at play. Our steps had led us back to the corner of the field, still no style. Suddenly there was a noise at the other end of the hedge, low down. It sounded like something charging at us, breaking twigs all the while. What I remember in my mind's eye, it was like a triple zoom camera effect that you see in some films, where it appears a figure is stationary, but the background rushes forward. Whatever it was it made that made the noise, we did not see or wait to, to see it. Without a word to each other, we both scrambled over the thorn hedge and ran across fields, only stopping when we reached a path leading back to our village. We stopped then, and looking at each other, we were both like, what the expletive was that all about? No idea, but whatever it was, and I still remember it as being very strange, instilled in the pair of us, who were admittedly already spooked up in watching horror movies that, uh, and having a few drinks, a sense of sudden panic. 
Some days later I retraced the walk in daylight, the snow having melted so we could not follow exact footsteps, but discovered at the end of the spiny hedge the star where it had always been. There was no clue as to what made the rushing, crunching noise that made us run away. I didn't class it specifically as a fairy or a ghost, just that that pixie-led experience seemed to make it relevant to the senses. I do think some places are thin, and the reason for this could vary. But although not stating a fixed belief to the actual nature and causes, but a supernatural type of experiences are real. Reality itself being something more of a question than an answer. Well, okay, well, try this one. This is um, from Somerset. It's um, a female in her 20s, in the 1990s. She's in Woodland by herself in the evening. Friends had gone ahead and I struggled behind. As I turned the corner, it was misty. The mist glowed a weird glow. As I walked into the low mist, there was a procession around three feet tall with Latin lanterns. In the mist, I paused, they saw me. They came forward and I waited for them to pass. They passed. I'd never taken drugs and hadn't taken any alcohol, but that was the weirdest experience. It lasted three to five minutes. By the time I got back to my cottage, my friends were concerned as I'd been away for about 45 minutes. Very strange. They looked medieval in dress, but their clothes were covered in mist at times. They were clear in their looks as being human. They were fairies. Or an earth energy, possibly a fairy-type entity. Before this, I had an open mind, but since, quite relaxed to this viewpoint, I have since read about fairies in academia and in philosophy. This one is from Sussex, a male in his 30s, from 2010. In the garden with several other people, only one of us shared my experience. It was in the morning, less than a minute. Um, it was a luminous shape, unlike anything I'd seen, glowing and dancing under a streetlight. Luminous human, looking very small. I was totally shocked, but filled with wonderment. This one is from Wales, from the Brecon Beacons. It's a male in his 50s in Woodland. He said that he had a prickling or tingling before and during the experience, a sense that the experience was a display put on especially for him. It was unusually vivid. It was the 9th of November 2013 on the Brecon Beacons. I was walking alone off a mountain where I'd been walking all day in sunny cold weather. At the foot of the mountain I saw a gnarled tree standing alone and immediately felt a tingle all over my body and sensed that there were fairies in the tree. I closed my eyes and had the beginnings of an out-of-body experience. I was not afraid and felt very privileged to be offered the encounter, but I wasn't ready for such strong magic as I was alone. I opened my eyes to make it stop. When I closed them again, the out-of-body experience started again, so I kept them open. I still felt very tingly and very alive and in awe of what I was experiencing. I felt very safe. After a few minutes, I thanked the fairies for what they had offered me and explained why I could not accept the full experience. I bade them farewell and walked on. I later learnt that the tree was a hawthorn. I don't really know what fairies are, but I felt strongly that they were not biological, even though they manifest a biological form. Otherwise, they would have been caught and classified by now. Also, they are definitely not aliens. 
which must exist somewhere, but on balance of probability will never visit Earth. Their discovery will be testifiable by some scientific method, such as radar and video cameras. The idea of fairies as small-winged humanoids is very charming and may be accurate, but it could also just be our way of trying to understand them. My best explanation is that the fairies may be emergent properties of beautiful environments. It had fairy energy, nature spirit energy. An encounter with a ghost or an angel would have felt different, but still with a magical quality. And the last one here um, is from Wales. Gwynedd, the male in the 1980s and his 30s. Uh, he's in a garden by himself. It's called the Lost Wedding Ring. It was Monday the 5th of July 1982. My wife and I were on holiday with our one-year-old son at a small cottage in the hills above Abershock in Gwynedd, Wales. I can be specific about the date because it was the day that Brazil played Italy in the 1982 World Cup. My mother and father had stayed with us over the weekend and we were due to leave on that afternoon. In the morning my wife had been washing the towels, nappies and such like and went outside to put them on the washing line. The washing line was a few steps up from the back of the cottage supported by two poles. The area was uphill and overgrown with grass and beyond a stone wall. The hill went up high to the summit. My wife suddenly cried out and my father and I rushed out to see if we could help. What had happened was, because my wife's hands and fingers were cold and wet from washing, she'd shaken out one of the towels, both a wedding ring and engagement ring were shot off her third finger of her left hand and landed in the deep grass. All four of us searched for the rings and after a couple of minutes we found the engagement ring but we couldn't find the wedding ring. We took everything into account, the direction of the hands, when she shook the towel, where the engagement ring was found, etc, etc, but no matter how hard we looked, we could not find it. It was assumed that when we were all making the initial search, one of us must have trodden it and pushed it into the ground. So as a last resort, my father and I set off to Abersock, where we eventually found a kind person to lend us a, a metal detector. Unfortunately, we were uh, unable to find the ground, uh, unfortunately we found that the ground had lots of metal underneath it with pipes and objects were found after many a positive reading we searched for many hours but to no avail my parents had to go home needless to say it was all very distressing it was late in the afternoon and we had virtually given up all hope of finding the wedding ring even though we knew it must be within the limited area of the washing line I was now alone and my wife had gone in to see our son it was at this point I remembered an old saying that if you lost something, you should ask the fairies to help you retrieve it. So I decided to give it a try. I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was along the lines of if there are fairies out there, you, can you please help me and guide me to where the ring can be found? Not knowing quite what to do next, I decided to clear my mind, seeing where my attention might go. I looked up and saw a large black bird hovering high in the clear sky. I focused on it, then let my eye move into a direct line below the bird to where, to where, to the ground. I concentrated on this piece of ground and moved towards it. I then moved the metal detector over the spot and it gave a zap noise to indicate there was metal below. But when I moved the detector over the spot again from the other direction, there was no repeat sound. 
Nevertheless, I decided that this was the spot that I'd been guided to. I should dig there. I put my knife in the ground, and there was a wedding ring, edgeways into the ground. My family and I must have gone over that spot many times, but somehow missed the ring. The fact that the ring was pressed into the ground edgeways would have made it a much smaller target for the metal detector. But I know beyond doubt that was the one spot that my attention had been drawn to after I'd asked the fairies to help me. Did I really get help from the fairies? Who can tell? But my wife and I were relieved and delighted to have found her wedding ring. So I said in a quiet little thank you for its return. Well, so ends that podcast on the fairies. As I say, a bit different to uh, what I've done in the past. Um, I'll put all the details of the sources on the website. And I'll also put the Fairy Investigation Society um, contact details there as well if uh, if you'd like to find further information. So that is all for today and i'd like to thank damselfly for the uh, background music and i'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast so until next time thank you and goodbye